Welcome to the Hands Up, Don't Shoot podcast, where I, your host, Ashley Franz Howell, tell the stories of Black victims of police brutality. Welcome to episode 11. Today, I'll be telling you the stories of Stephanie Washington and Prince Carmen Jones. So this first case with Stephanie Washington is going to be a bit different than the ones that I usually do, because fortunately... This victim is still alive today and still alive to tell her story. And I am actually going to read the story that she gave so we can get her side. Because, you know, we always are dealing with one side of the story, which is usually the police officers. So when I get the opportunity to tell the victim's side, I am going to take full advantage of that. What I'm going to do is sort of give you an intro, and then I am going to read Stephanie's statement. So on April 15th, 2019, Stephanie Washington and her boyfriend, Paul Witherspoon, had spent the day hanging out with a few of Paul's friends. Stephanie and Paul were going to call it a night, but not before they were going to make one last stop to a convenience store at a gas station. So this is where I'm going to read Stephanie's statement and how things went down according to her. It says, quote, We hung out inside the house on Argyle Street for several more hours, and then Paul drove my red Honda Civic. I was in the front passenger seat, and we went to go on gas, which is near Eli Whitney. When we got there, we parked at the gas pump closest to the front of the store. Paul got out and bought a pack of cigarettes for Binky. I stayed in the car and was listening to music through my phone, which I transmit with an FM receiver to the car speakers. I recall that Paul was talking to the store clerk and also a news guy because I could see their hands moving but I could not hear anything they were saying. I know he is a news guy now from seeing it on the news, but at the same time, I just thought he was another customer at the store. I have seen the clerk there before because that is the only gas station that is open at that time, and he is the one that is normally working at that time. I do not know his name, and I have never seen the news guy either. I did not see the news guy until he was at the window, so I'm not sure how he got there. Paul was out of the car for a few minutes and then got back in with the cigarettes he had bought. I had been telling him that I wanted to go home because it was late and I was tired. After Paul got into the car, I saw a man with a camo jacket who looked like he was homeless, and Paul was talking to him while he was still seated in the driver's seat of my car. Paul was talking to the homeless guy about how they had matching army coats. We drove back to Argyle Street and pulled into the driveway of Binky's house. Paul got out, gave Binky the cigarettes he bought him, and came back to the car. He was out of the car for less than a minute, 
never went inside the house, and I did not see him talk to anyone else. I saw Paul actually give the cigarettes to Binky and did not see him give Binky anything else. We pulled onto Argyle Street toward Dixwell, and as we were driving, I saw a white police car pull up in front of us with no lights on. Paul stopped the car, and I watched the purple police car pass the white car, then pass my car, and stop behind my car. I know the purple car is a Hamden police car because of the color. I could see the police officer get out of the Hamden car and was in the street before Paul opened his door. I was still playing music through the car at the time, but we could hear each other talk. When Paul opened his door and put his hands up, the officer pulled out his pistol and started shooting with no hesitation. When the police officer started firing, Paul ducked back into the car. He landed low in the seat so that his back was down near the crack where the seat and the back portion of the driver's seat meet. Paul was not responsive because I was saying stuff to him and touching him, but he wasn't responding. I thought he might have been shot and was dead. I was trying to take cover from the gunshots, so I was leaning in between the driver and passenger seats toward the back seat. It was like being in a nightmare. I thought I was going to die. As the gunfire was going on, I started to feel a tingling, burning, and numbness in my leg. Looked down and saw blood and glass, and I remember thinking that I was shot. I also remember hearing the glass break on the car, starting with Paul's window, then the back window, and then my window. While I was ducking toward the back of the car, I felt something hit the front of my car. I picked up my head, partially sat up, looked forward, and felt a fast burning sensation on the right side of my forehead. The reason I picked up my head was because the police car hit my car. I did not see any police officers in front of me, just a white police car. I immediately put my head back down. When the shots ended, I remember saying out loud to Paul that I thought I was shot. Paul was still not responsive, and then some police officers pulled me out of the car and put me on the ground, stomach down. I do not remember what they looked like or which town they were from, but they were restraining me on the ground. I could feel somebody holding my arms, legs, and back on the ground. I kept saying that I didn't want to be on the ground because it was cold and I was lying in broken glass. I could hear the police officers saying there was no gun, and I kept asking him, why did you shoot me? I could also hear Paul yelling, why did you shoot my girlfriend? After a few minutes, somebody gave me something to put on my head since I was bleeding from my head. I was taken to Yale New Haven Hospital in an ambulance and was there until the day before Easter. I was shot four times, twice in the back, once in the forehead, and once in the butt. I had surgery while I was in the hospital, but as far as I know, they never took any bullets or pieces of bullets out of me. They also told me that I still have some bullets or pieces of bullets inside of me. I did not recognize any of the police officers that were at the scene. I have since heard the names of two police officers on the news from Hamden and Yale and do not have any idea who they are. I used to work at Chipotle in Hamden between October 2017 and January 2019. 
I remember seeing some of the Hamden police officers come in to eat, but can only remember that one of their names might be Pat. I worked at Muya in West Haven, or Allentown, for approximately one month prior to this incident, but no longer worked there. I have also never been pulled over by any Yale University or Hamden police officers. I never saw Paul with a gun on the night of this incident, or anything else I think would have looked like a gun, even a fake one. I also have never seen Paul with a gun in the entire time that I have known him. I have never let Paul use my vehicle unless I have been with him. Before we went to the gas station, Binky and Paul were talking outside in the street on Argyle Street because Binky was upset about something that had happened with his baby's mother. Paul was trying to calm him down, and they were hugging. They never had any type of physical fight. So that was Stephanie's statement on what happened to her and her boyfriend, Paul, on the night of April 15th, 2019. So you, like me, are probably thinking, how the hell did we get to this point? One second, they're at a gas station picking up a couple things. Next thing they know, they are being shot at by police officers. So it turns out that the employee that was inside of the gas station had called the police about an earlier incident that happened outside of the gas station. So the employee said that there was an African-American male customer with dreadlocks and he was driving a red car with a female passenger. The employee said that the male had pulled a gun on the person who delivered the newspapers and asked him for money. And the employee also said that the male was harassing a customer. So we know that Stephanie has a red car and that she was a passenger along with Paul and the car. And here's where things get a little funky. The employee, when they called the police, said that the red car had a license plate number AK63322. But the dispatcher had reported AK6 3233, which was Stephanie's license plate. So we see where that disconnect was and how this could have been avoided had there not been a simple mix-up of numbers. Now, we do have video of this incident, and I'm going to put the links in the show notes because the audio is not that good And one of the videos, the first, I guess, 15 seconds, there is no audio. And that's of the body camera of one of the police officers. And then there's some, what looks like security camera footage from one of the buildings that they were in front of. So again, I'm going to post those in the show notes. And then please, please take a look at them for yourself. There were 16 total shots fired between the two officers. 13 of them came from the Hamden officer 
and his name was David Eaton. The Yale officer was named Terrence Pollock, and he fired the other three shots. And those shots were actually in response to Officer Eaton's gunfire. Officer Eaton was charged with one count of first-degree assault and two counts of first-degree reckless endangerment. He posted his $100,000 bond and was supposed to appear for his trial on October 28th of that same year. So for some reason, I think the trial may have been pushed back. And then 2020 hit and there was COVID. So I think right now this case is sort of in limbo and we're just waiting to see what happens next. So when I find out more, I'll let you guys know what's going on with this case. The other officer, the Yale officer, Terrence Pollock, he was not arrested or charged with anything, but he was allowed to return to work and be in a position where he would not be allowed to carry a weapon. After the investigation was finished, it was found that Stephanie nor Paul were armed And now Stephanie is actually filing a lawsuit against the two officers that were involved in the shooting. And another one of the defendants is actually the store employee who made the 911 call. And it turns out he said that he didn't actually see a gun, but he just inferred that it was there. And so he is part of the lawsuit for false reporting. As I mentioned earlier, this case is still ongoing. We are still waiting for court dates to happen. So once there's an update, I hope to give you guys what happened and hopefully there will be some justice in the case. And that was the story of Stephanie Washington. Now I'm going to tell you the story of Prince Carmen Jones. Prince Carmen Jones Jr., but more affectionately known as Rocky by his friends and family, was born on March 30th, 1975, to his parents, Prince Jones Sr. and Dr. Mabel Jones in Fairfax County, Virginia. Prince was a personal trainer at a gym and had planned on enlisting in the Navy after completing his degree from Howard University in Washington, D.C. He was engaged to a woman named Candace Carson, and they had a daughter together named Nina. Prince was coming to the end of his time at Howard, and he had one assignment left before it was finally time for him to graduate. He had been going for about seven years, so I know this was a pretty exciting thing for him. So his assignment was to write his autobiography. He was a great student. He earned good grades. He was very active in his classes. But this was one thing that sort of stumped him. And I get it. Writing about yourself, I think sometimes can be really hard. 
So on August 31st, 2000, one of Prince's friends named Vernon Robertson Jr. had picked up Prince from his job around 1030 that night. He drove to Prince's job in Prince's black Jeep Cherokee, and they had planned on going to pick up Prince's daughter, who was being babysat by a friend. But before they headed to the complex to get his daughter, they decided they would stop off at a lounge and get a couple drinks and hang out for a bit. They said they were there for a few hours, and when they left, they headed out to get Prince's daughter. The lady that was babysitting her said that she remembered waking up around 1.15 to let them in, and the three of them ate, watched some TV, and talked together for a while. Throughout their time at her house, Prince was talking to his fiancée, Candace, and ultimately he said he wanted to, to go see her. So Vernon and Helena, the lady that was watching Nina, said that he should just stay there. It's late. You can see her tomorrow. But Prince really wanted to see her. And so he tried to take Nina with him. But since she was already sleeping, they just said, leave her here. She's already asleep. You can go ahead and we'll make sure she's all right. And Prince left, and it was the last time that they would see him alive. That same night, Corporal Carlton Jones and Sergeant Alexander Bailey were looking for a Jeep that belonged to some drug dealers that they had been sort of looking into for a few months. Corporal Jones was an undercover narcotics officer, and Sergeant Bailey was his supervisor. This Jeep was also tied to a stolen police weapons case. So Corporal Jones saw Prince driving that night, and again, he was looking for a Jeep, and we know Prince drove a Jeep, but Prince's Jeep had Pennsylvania license plate on them. And the corporal was looking for Maryland plates, but he said he was sort of interested in this Jeep with the Pennsylvania tags. So he called the tags into dispatch and saw that the car was registered to Prince's mom, Mabel Jones. The person that they were actually looking for was short and sort of stocky, but Prince was tall and a little more lean, but they still decided to follow him anyway. They followed Prince from Hyattsville, Maryland to Fairfax County, Virginia. So that's a distance of about 16 miles, which for some people doesn't seem that long. But if you are from the DMV area or know about the DMV area and understand that city miles are much different than maybe country miles that's on a straight road, then you will understand that that's a very, very long time that they were following him. And 
there were times where they would lose him and then find him again. But just thinking about how far they followed him and then how they followed him from one state to another is a bit wild to me. When they crossed the Potomac Bridge, their radios ended up cutting out. So the officers had been talking to each other this whole time, but then I guess maybe they were too far out of range and ended up calling each other on their cell phones. Shortly after that, Sergeant Bailey stopped his tail and Corporal Jones continued to follow Prince into a residential street. Prince stopped his Jeep to get out and identify himself, and Corporal Jones also identified himself while flashing his gun at Prince. So again, we are working with the side of the officer because we do not have Prince's So it was reported that Prince got back into his Jeep and rammed it into the officer's car. Now, the officers were driving in undercover vehicles. So it's two, three o'clock in the morning and you're being followed by some random cars. And then one of the people get out of the car, says they're a police officer and waves their gun in your face. I would find it hard to believe that they actually are a police officer. So I could see this happening. Maybe Prince was trying to find a way to get out of danger. And this was the only way he could think of. So in response to Prince ramming the car into him, Corporal Jones fired 16 shots at Prince, who was still in his Jeep. Prince got hit with six bullets. Five of them hit him in his back, and another one went through his arm. He was able to drive off for a little bit before he crashed just a few feet outside of his fiancé's home. He was taken to... A hospital shortly after, but unfortunately, he did not make it. Prince Jones was 25 years old. The next month, in October of 2000, Fairfax County Attorney Robert F. Horan Jr. decided that he would not file criminal charges against the officers. And six years later, in January 2006, a Prince George's County Circuit Court civil jury decided that Prince's death at the hands of Prince George's County Police was wrongful and it was a result of the criminal justice system that failed to hold police accountable for serious misconduct. A Justice Department investigation had looked into whether Carlton Jones had violated Prince's civil rights but he was cleared because they said there was a lack of sufficient evidence. In April of 2002, an administrative trial board of the PG County Police Department cleared both 
Sergeant Alexander Bailey and Corporal Carlton Jones of any wrongdoing in Prince's death. But a jury decided otherwise and awarded $2.5 million in damages to Prince's daughter, a million dollars to his mother, and $200,000 to his father. In 2015, ta Coates, which is probably a name you've heard before, released his book, Between the World and Me, which talks about his friend, Prince Jones. They were actually friends at Howard University. And in 2020, the book was adapted into a movie, which I will link both the book and the movie in the show notes. I highly suggest you check out both of them and just get a little more insight into the life of Prince Jones and a look at police brutality in the United States. And that family was the life of Prince Carmen Jones. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Facebook by searching for the Hands Up, Don't Shoot podcast group, on Instagram at HudsPod, and check out my website at www.hudspod.com. Remember, HudsPod is spelled H-U-D-S-P-O-D. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you get the latest episodes. And if you don't mind, please leave me a five-star review. Stay safe, and I'll see you next week.